I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Just to remind you, we do have three services a day starting tomorrow through Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the afternoon, and then every evening at 7 o'clock with the conference concluding at fr- on Friday evening at 7 o'clock. A couple of years ago, I was in a freshman seminar here on campus, and we had a, a Q&A time. And one of the freshman young ladies asked me a question. And I said, you can ask me any question you'd like. And so she said, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I thought, that was a weird question. Because I was clueless to what she meant by a superpower. I didn't realize she was talking about like superpower movies. Because I had never seen a superpower movie. And so I quickly responded and I said to her, I didn't need a superpower because I already had one. And that is, and she looked at me very strangely and I answered, I said, I have the Holy Spirit. I have a superpower. Whenever you read the Bible, you read the scripture, everywhere you look, you see power. Our theme this, this, this week in Bible conference is centered on an Old Testament power word. What is the word? Well, in Hebrew, over here we see what it is, is the word chesed. Can you say that with me? Say it, ready? Now, you, you got to say it like a Hebrew, not like a, an American, okay? It's not chesed. It's got a little guttural sound to it, kind of a little hockey sound to it. It's chesed. Can you say that? Say it with me. Say it like a real Hebrew. All right, there you go. You got it. So on this side, we have the Hebrew. And by the way, there's, there is a, a debate over whether or not it's H-E-S-E-D or C-H-E-S-E-D. And so we chose C-H, uh, we chose C-H because that's the correct way to do it. Okay. So... <laughs> And then over here, of course, is the definition of the word chesed, which actually is used multiple different ways in the Old Testament. But our focal point this semester is on God's, or or this, this week is on God's steadfast love. It's used lots of different ways. It could, it's often used as mercy. It could be used as kindness. It could be used as goodness or loving kindness. And then, of course, steadfast love. So what makes it a power word. Or a number of reasons. First of all, because it's prominent throughout the Old Testament. It is used 248 times in just the Old Testament. It's also a very potent word because it tells us what God is like. What is God like? God is like chesed. And then it's also a very personal word, a very practical word. Because of the 248 times it is used in the Old Testament, it is found in the book of Psalms 50% plus of the time, 127 times. So, for example, the word hesed is the main theme of one entire psalm. You've probably read it before, Psalm 136. 
There are 26 verses in this psalm, and the second line of each verse repeats the exact same phrase, where it says, for his mercy or his steadfast love endures forever. And it says it over and over and over. And why, so why the Psalms? What is it that makes it personal? Well, everybody here understands that when you read the Psalms, you have a personal encounter with God. The Psalms is sort of like the bloodstream to the soul. It's like an IV you stick in. And so very quickly, you have a sense of an experience of knowing God's presence in your life. And in this case, of course, his steadfast love. So here's my goal tonight as we begin this week. We have wonderful speakers. We'll be introducing them over the course of the week. And they're going to hit the theme in various and multiple ways, however they feel like the Lord is leading them. But the goal tonight is to take the word said, this power word, and try to get a basic understanding of it. Maybe we could call it a simple primer on God's steadfast love. And we're going to look at it tonight from three angles or three points of view, or maybe if I could just simply say three parts of the Bible. And tonight we will see said first of all, from the first part, and that is from the beginning. That is from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We'll get to Exodus 34 after a while. And here we find in the book of Genesis, 11 times the word said. And when we read of this verse in the, in the book of Genesis, generally it is man's relationship with another man. It's the way people treat each other. Let's look at a few of the uses. The first one has to do with God's deliverance of a family named Lot and his family from the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You probably know the story. God sends two angels to rescue the family from this wicked city because God would bring judgment upon it. However, the angels that are sent have to urge Lot and his wife and daughters to get up and get out of the city because they were very slow to evacuate. Listen to Genesis 19 verse 15. Up, they said, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized Lot and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. When Lot finally realized that his life was truly in jeopardy and he could have died, he concluded that he had received, and this is the first time it's found in the Bible, great chesed. Genesis 19, 19, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness. There it is in saving my life. So we look at the very first instance in the Bible where the word has said is mentioned. It refers to this great kindness or this great mercy in rescuing or saving someone's life. Like someone who is saved from drowning. Or somebody who is rescued from a burning building. They've been delivered. Then there's a second instance in the book of Genesis I want to focus on. And that has to do with a man named Joseph. 
Joseph had been thrown into prison. While he was in prison, he interpreted the dream of two men. One was the king's baker and the other was the king's butler, or we'll just call him the cupbearer. And Joseph interpreted the the cupbearer's dream while they were in in prison. And Joseph tells the cupbearer that his dream means he's going to get out of prison. He's going to survive. And what does Joseph do? He asks the cupbearer to show him chesed by remembering him before the king so he could get out of prison. Listen to Genesis 40 verse 14. Joseph said to the cupbearer, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. Joseph's request for Hesed was to be delivered, to be remembered, to be rescued from prison. He was like a POW who somebody came in and brought him out. And so the basic understanding then of Hesed begins with the idea of showing kindness and mercy to deliver, to rescue, or to save someone. And then we come to Genesis 21. And there we find the story of a conversation that Abraham has with two men. Their names are Abimelech and Phicol. And these two men feared for their lives and they asked Abraham to swear, to make a promise that he would return the same chesed that they had formerly shown him. Listen to Genesis 21, 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So now we see something added on to the idea of kindness or care to rescue, to deliver, to save. And that is making a promise to swear to do something, to make an oath, a commitment. Yes, even the idea of a covenant. And then finally, the last uh, passage of scripture in the book of Genesis in the beginning where we see the word has said and that is the relationship between a father and son Jacob and Joseph so what's happening well Jacob is about to die and so he asks Joseph to promise to treat him with chesed and that is that he would bury him back in his homeland in Canaan that's Israel with his family and not in Egypt. We know if you read the Bible, Abraham and Isaac and their wives were buried together. And Jacob said, I want to be buried there. And I don't want to be buried in Egypt. So Joseph was asked to make a promise. And how is he to make that promise? He was to put his hand under his father's thigh. Now, what what, what what is the idea of putting your hand under someone's thigh? Well, it's the idea of making an oath 
or swearing to do something. For example, we do this in the court of law when we raise our right hand and we swear to tell the truth. Or you do that when you're being sworn into the military. We've seen it here on the platform of the amphitorium where some of our students were sworn into the military. Or we do this when we put our hands over our hearts and we pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, in this case, to put your hand under the thigh was the idea of a son's submission to his father who was the source of his life. He came from his father. And so it was a making of a covenant or commitment. So let me read to you Genesis 47, 29. And when the time drew near that Israel, Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So what do we see in the first book of the Bible? We see the word chesed used in various illustrations. And we conclude by looking at it in the beginning that the idea of chesed is an oath. It is a commitment. It is swearing to do something. It is a covenant between two parties who are promising that they would treat them in a way where they would show them kindness or love by rescuing them, by delivering them, by protecting them, by helping them. Maybe I could say that the closest thing for us to really grasp chesed is what you do at a wedding altar. When you get married and you make a covenant and a commitment to love and to be kind and to serve one another. So when we look at the word hesed, we get the big picture. It's this commitment, it's this loyalty, it is this kindness, it is this love that you you show often by rescuing and saving those. And then that leads me to the second place in the Bible I want us to see where where we look at hesed. And that second place is not only in the beginning, but now it is on top of the mountain. And that's where we look tonight in Exodus chapter 34. So let me ask you this. If you could pick one passage in the entire Old Testament, think of it, out of 39 books and 929 chapters, which passage of Scripture best describes what God is like. And I think the best passage is found here in Exodus chapter 34. You say, why? Because this is the exact same passage that all the Old Testament prophets point back to in their writings to describe God. That is men like David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, and Zechariah, all of these prophets go read their books. At some point in their writings, they point back to Exodus chapter 34, where God speaks about himself. And so 
as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want to ask two questions. First of all, before we read it, what do you think Moses and the Jewish people would have thought God was like before God reveals himself in Exodus 34? Let me say this. Exodus 34 is the first time in the Bible, the first time in the Bible where God actually describes what he is like to another man. He describes himself. But before that, what if you were if you were if you were a Hebrew, what would you have thought God was like? Well, think with me. What had the Jewish people already experienced up to this point as to what God was like? Well, think about it. They had been in Egypt and they were delivered under Moses' leadership. And what did they see God do in, in Egypt? They saw God send ten what? Ten plagues. Plagues of God's judgment upon the people with the last plague being the death of the firstborn son. Not only that, but they had seen God's judgment on the Egyptian army when they crossed the Red Sea alive. And what happened to the armies of Pharaoh? They were drowned in the Red Sea. Think about it. God led them through the wilderness to come to Mount Sinai. And when they got to Mount Sinai, what did they see? They knew God was up there somewhere on top of the mountain. But what did they visibly see? They saw thick, black, dark clouds. They heard thunderclaps. They saw lightning bolts. They saw the mountain shake. And God said, if you touch the mountain, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. And right before Exodus 33, what had happened? Moses was on top of the mountain and he didn't come down for a long time. So what did the people do instead? They took their gold and what did they make? They made a golden calf, an idol. And when Moses came down from the mountain and he saw what they were doing, God's wrath of judgment was poured out on the Jewish people. And the Bible tells us that Moses had 3,000 people executed. So I want you to think with me. If you had been in Egypt and you had gone through the plagues and you'd come across the Red Sea and saw God drown the Egyptian army, and you get to Mount Sinai and that thing is shaken and there's thunderbolts and dark clouds and, and if you touch it, you're going to die. And then you build a golden calf and 3,000 people get executed. In your mind, what do you think God's going to be like? You, you tell me, what is God going to be like in your mind? He's a God of what? He's God of judgment. So that would be, I think, the way everybody naturally thought. So that leads to the second question, and that is, what was God like? Moses in Exodus 33 says to God, God, show me your glory. He said, Lord, reveal yourself to me. God, put yourself on display. God, tell me what you are like. And God said to Moses, Moses, I can't do that. There's a problem. 
I can't answer your request. Because he says in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Let me put it this way, Moses, you won't survive the view. You'll be incinerated. You'll be, you'll turn into crispy Moses. That's what's going to happen. So what does God do? He answers his prayer, but he doesn't do it through sight. What he sees, he does it through words. And he takes Moses and he hides him in a crack in the mountain rock. And then he covers Moses and he causes his presence and his glory to pass by. And what Moses is about to hear, the people will never forget for all of time. The Jewish people never forgot what Moses heard. And I hope tonight you will never forget for the rest of your life what God described about himself the first time in human history that God tells people what he is like. And here is where we can grasp the very heart of God. Look at Exodus 34 and verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. By the way, that's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord. He says it twice. The Lord God. And here's what he is like. Merciful and gracious. Long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the father of the fathers upon the children. And upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. What is God like? What did he say to Moses? He said, Moses, I am merciful and I am gracious. The bent of God's heart is not judgment. It is always, always, always mercy and grace. I'm sure Moses would have thought it was judgment, just like you and I would think it's judgment. But instead, God describes his deepest delight and his first reaction towards us. It is always mercy and graciousness. And then he says, the Lord is slow to anger. That literally means that God is long of nostrils. He's not short-nosed. You say, what do you mean? Have you ever noticed when people get really angry, they start to breathe differently? It means that God puts up with a lot. You know what? If God puts up with you, it's a lot. Someone said he doesn't have his finger on the trigger ready to shoot us. Think about it this way. God has to be provoked to anger, but not to love. Is that the way you and I are? We're opposite. We must be provoked to love. And anger comes naturally, easily, and quickly for us. 
God's mercy is the first thing that comes out when pricked. And now we come to the word hesed. He says the Lord is abundant in goodness. The word goodness there is translated steadfast love or mercy. The Lord is abundant in goodness and truth. And then he says the Lord keeps mercy, steadfast love for thousands, literally to a thousand generations. God is saying that his hesed has no time limits and it has no term limits. You can't outrun his mercy and his mercy doesn't run out. God has bound himself in an unbreakable bond of love. Now, to be clear, God is not lenient and God is not soft on sin. His demand for righteousness is exact and insistent. What does he say? The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sin and guilt are passed down. They're passed down to children. They're passed down to God. They're passed down to grandchildren. Barely, but they're passed down to grand grandchildren. How are they? How is sin passed down? It's passed down through our natures, sin nature. So when you were born, you received the same nature your parents had, and it's passed down by our choices. That is, the choices that we make do affect the families in which we grow up in. However, he is saying that God's goodness is not damned up. But it flows down in such a way that it is impossible to stop it from swallowing up our sins. His mercy travels down not to the third generation or to the fourth generation, but it travels down literally to a thousand generations. I want you to think with me. When was this spoken on top of Mount Sinai? This was 3,400 years ago. And the mercy of God that was revealed to Moses on top of Mount Sinai is here with us today. Not the sins of Moses are here with us. But it was the grace of God in the mercy of God, the hesed of God. The New Testament says it this way, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Now, let me say, for a lot of us, this is almost unbelievable. You know, a lot of people today are talking about deconstructing their faith. Have you heard that? I'd like to suggest tonight that there does need to be a deconstruction, but it's not of your faith but it's of your viewpoint or your view about God. Think about it. When Adam fell in the garden of Eden, what did it do? It messed up his mind about God. How do we know this? Because when God came into the garden, he would normally run to God. Now he runs from God. And are we not the same? Do we not have to overcome our own natural dark thoughts about God? We think he is who he is not. And so for many, many of us, the Christian life is is a journey. It's a journey of deconstructing your natural assumptions as to who God is and what he is like. And folks, I'm going to tell you, this is not that easy. 
It takes a long time. For some people, it takes decades. It takes lots of sermons. And it takes lots of suffering to slowly replace in your thinking who God insists that he is and to truly believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Perhaps for a lot of us, Satan's greatest victory in our life is not the sin that we regularly indulge in, but it is the way your wrong thoughts are about God because that's what keeps your heart aloof and that's what keeps your heart cold towards God. Tonight as we were singing the song, Just As I Am, I remember tonight the first time I heard that song. I was probably, I'm going to guess, in the neighborhood of like 19 or 20 years old. I was a sophomore in college. And I was invited to go to church with a friend of mine. It was a Baptist church somewhere in Charleston, South Carolina. It's that simple. That's all I remember. And I remember it was little. And I do remember that the preacher was boring. Okay? How many have ever heard a boring preacher? Okay. All right. The woods are full of them, okay? So I, I, I sat there and listened and, okay, didn't get a whole lot out of the sermon. And we came to the end of the service and they did something that I'd never experienced in my life. They gave an invitation. I didn't know what that was. But it was, it was a call to a response. And we got up and we sang a song I'd never sung before. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark block to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I kept. And I remember standing there, having never sung the song, sort of singing it, but thinking about the words. And God's Holy Spirit moved on my heart and I literally broke down and I started weeping. I was weeping in church. I was dating a girl. Not the girl I married. I was dating another girl. She saw me crying. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we got out of church. I was walking. I was crying out of church. I went and got my car. I used to have a Ford Pinto. Have you ever heard of a Pinto? It's your first disposable car. And I got in that Pinto. And I couldn't stop crying. She said, what is wrong with you? I said, I don't know. But I was overwhelmed uh, with God's love for me in the sacrifice of his son. And I couldn't get over it then, and I can't get over it now. For many of us, Satan's defeat of our life is not that you sin. But that you don't think right about God and your heart is cold and you stand back of God. Could it be that you've never gotten the vision that Moses heard about on top of the mountain? 
The whole Old Testament points back to what God is like on the mount. And he shows us there what God's relationship to man is. And there we see said on the mount. But that, let me quickly go to my last point. Because the final proof of what God is like is not found in Exodus. But it is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here we see Hesed on the cross. When what Moses could not see, he couldn't see God. The Bible says that the disciples of Jesus did see. John says it this way, we beheld his glory. That glory was full of what? Grace and truth. What is John saying? He's saying that Jesus possessed as a human being the same traits as God as they were found in Exodus 34 and verse 6. He possesses grace and truth. And specifically, John identifies that the Hesed in the Old Testament is grace in the New Testament. I think this explains for us what John meant in John 1.17. When he says these words, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does he mean here? John doesn't mean that the law was given through Moses and was somehow opposite of grace and truth. Here's the law, here's grace, they're opposite, they stand in contrast. That is not what John is saying. He means something different. You say, well, what does he mean? Well, when the Bible speaks about the law, he's not talking about laws specifically. He's talking about the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. Those books include what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That's the law. So in Exodus 34, that's actually referring to the law. The law came by Moses. The Torah came by Moses. Now, the law was grace. I mean, did not God reveal his grace on Mount Sinai? The answer is absolutely yes. So what's the point of grace and truth coming through Jesus? Well, I think the answer is in the previous verse in John when it says, of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. What does he mean grace for grace? The word for there is the Greek word anti. It means instead of. But it's not the idea of a substitute, like grace being substituted for grace. It's, it's the idea of something more, or maybe we could put it this way, a fresh s- supply. It's like if you live in a country where they bake the bread and you have it the next morning, it's a fresh supply of bread. And what he is saying is this, that with Jesus, we have received a whole new infusion of grace. Paul says it's super abundant grace. Grace was given in the Old Testament, 
But a whole new era has come, a fullness of grace in the New Testament. With Jesus, a whole new outpouring of grace from a God full of grace has come to us. Of his fullness we have received. So what Moses revealed in part, Jesus reveals to us in fullness. And we see this full and complete outpouring of chesed, his grace from one great place. And that is from the cross. And as we finish tonight, I want to finish looking at chesed from the most simple of illustrations. I'm so glad tonight we sang my favorite song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And the second stanza says the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. We see here on the cross what happens. The fullness, the outpouring of hesed is here. And on that cross, there are three three people dying on, on that hill that day on Calvary. There's the Son of God in the middle, Jesus, and on either side, there are thieves. One of the thieves mocked Jesus, but another thief cried out to Jesus. And that dying thief next to Jesus cried out, and he said these words, Lord, remember me. Like Joseph said to the king's cupbearer, remember me before the king. What did he say? Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, the king. And so get me out of this house. He wanted to be rescued. He wanted to be delivered. But in this case, on the hill of Calvary, the thief was speaking to the king of kings. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. But the thief on the cross was not like Joseph, who was actually forgotten by the king's cupbearer and did not receive Hesed at the time. But the thief on the cross was not forget, forgotten. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And what do we see on that cross in the, like the simplest way? This thief who could do nothing for himself, a life filled with sin, dying for his crime, unworthy of any right standing with God, who has no hope, cries out and he asks for the one in the middle, the king of kings, the savior, the rescuer, the deliverer. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is he saying? Show me said. Make a commitment. Swear to me. Make an oath. Remember me. Don't forget me. And what did he say? He said, today, here's the promise. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. I will be loyal and faithful to love you, to rescue you, to save you, to deliver you. I will show you chesed. God's deepest heart was shown at the cross where his son was crucified, where his judgment was satisfied, where his wrath 
was exhausted, where his righteousness was demonstrated, where his love was displayed, where his promises were fulfilled, and where his grace is offered. So two questions. Number one, have you received this grace? Have you? Do you have it tonight? I'm not talking about up here. I'm talking about right here. Have you cried out like the dying thief? Lord, remember me. Save me, God. I'm trusting in you. Have you been saved? If not, then tonight, embrace his promise. His chesed. And then let me say to you who have embraced his love... Are you now applying that has said to the whole of your life? Your insecurities. He will never leave you or forsake you. Your greatest fears. Your own personal faults and failures. Because let's be honest, all of us are messed up. You're messed up in your head. You're messed up in your heart. You're messed up in your hands. But this should not cause us to run from God, but to run to God. Because God, in the midst of our sins, still will show us his grace and his truth. Because our God is a God of steadfast love. He is a God of hesed. And may this week our hearts be full as we learn over and over this great unchanging truth of what our God is like. Would you bow your head with me, please, as we pray tonight? Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit this week will increase our faith, will illuminate and and enlighten our understanding, will help us to see, Lord, how your promises, your, your chesed, your steadfast love can apply to so many different ways in which we live and struggle. And so, Lord, we pray for this. We ask for a spiritual revival in our hearts this week. I pray for revival in the dorms. I pray that prayer meetings will break out in dormitory rooms and open areas and gathering places. And God, that you will work in a mighty and a powerful way. Lord, bless our offering as we are, are trying to honor your word. For you have said pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. And so, Lord, we pray you will bless us abundantly this week and provide every single need. And thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.